Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technology. Over 2.3 million people died due to COVID by February 2021. Our society is aging. And I believe this is the time when we need to collectively open up the discussions about end-of-life care and the fear of dying. My name is Tiasha Zeitz, and today you will hear from Dr. Ryan Van Wert, an MD, an intensive care physician who is the clinical assistant professor at Stanford University and also a CEO and co-founder of Vinca. Vinca provides comprehensive advanced care planning technology solutions that enable healthcare organizations to deliver high-quality end-of-life care consistent with individuals' preferences. This episode is a part of the H-Tech series. This is a series of discussions about end-of-life care, geriatric care, caregiving, and the aging society. In a few moments... You will hear a discussion about how to approach advanced care planning, how big of an issue this is in healthcare, and why advanced care planning is an important topic for you and your loved ones. Now, to Dr. Van Bert. Uh, Ryan, you're a pulmonary critical care specialist, so you deal with COPD and lung cancers as two of the main areas of your expertise. And COPD is the third leading cause of death uh, in the disease category in the United States. I wonder how often do you have to talk about death in your clinical practice on a daily basis? You're absolutely right that uh Lung diseases represent a very significant uh, burden in, in the United States and, and globally. And uh, smoking-related lung disease, or, or COPD, is um, one of those where those conversations are really important about care preferences. And specifically, when people are have their lung disease progress to the point where they're needing oxygen to uh, live at home and to walk around, those are times when... The unfortunately, things have progressed to the point where these conversations are particularly important about future care preferences and making sure that the treatments that are provided align with an individual's wishes. Seven years ago, you created a company called Vinca, which is an advanced care planning technology solution. Did this come from your clinical practice and the fact that you already had to have these conversations because of the specialty that you're in? Yes, it did. And it came more from the critical care side or the ICU side. So in the ICU, we're taking care of people that need to be on life support, on ventilators, otherwise. And what we were seeing time and again is that individuals were coming into the emergency room and ending up on life support and in our ICUs. And they often had uh, existing conditions, existing serious illnesses like COPD or dementia or advanced cancer. and what we had found is that nobody had taken the time to have a dialogue with them about what their care preferences were. And at the same time, we know that most people, when they're asked, they prefer at the, at the end of life and when they're faced with a serious illness, they want more comfort-focused care. 
They want supportive care and they want to be around family and otherwise, and they certainly don't want to be in the hospital with uh, a tube, unable to communicate um, and, and very uncomfortable. And it seemed to, to us, uh, we were doing a postdoc at the time that was focused on medical technology innovation called the Stanford Biodesign uh, Program in Innovation. And uh, what we found uh, through that process was that this was one of the biggest gaps in care in the healthcare system today, because um, there were so many people faced with serious illness, and so many of them were getting care that was not in accordance with their, their wishes. And when we look at overall uh, the economic side of things, that about a third of our Medicare budget, about $200 billion in the U.S. is spent every year for care delivered in the last year of life. So this is one of the largest areas of spend in our healthcare system. And I would argue that this is one of the lowest quality care points in our healthcare system today. And yet it's one of the most expensive. So there's a clear disconnect between the quality of care that people are getting at the end of life from a, a macro level, the, the level of spend in our health system. And that was what really drove us to go after this need and try and solve it was the fact that there was clear patient impact and family impact. And these were heartbreaking stories of people getting this kind of care, very difficult decisions that family members were being asked to make on their behalf when they didn't know an individual's preferences. Very difficult for the healthcare provider to be in that situation. And all the while, there is, is such a huge amount of spend. It really is not acceptable to, uh, to have this problem stand in our, our healthcare system today. Do you know what's the rough estimate of the percentage of patients that actually have an advanced care plan? Yeah, we know that it's, it's low. It's very low. Um, and depending on the, on the estimates, it can be as low as a few percent to maybe 20, 30 percent at the very most. You know, our experience when we partner with organizations is that when you look at the over 65 population, which is the Medicare population, we often see that only two to three percent of individuals have a documented advanced care plan on their, on their chart. And again, depending on who, uh, which statistic you read, we know that somewhere uh, around 25% of that over 65 population is classified as having an advanced or serious illness. So the, the numbers just don't add up in terms of what, what we're doing today. And it's, a, it's, in my opinion, the most pressing problem in our healthcare system today. And where is the big issue, you know, when you have a patient that, as you say, is receiving perhaps too much care, when uh, just uh, compassionate care would be more appropriate? Is it the problem that the family is unsure what the patient would want? Is it them holding on to the fact that there's hope? Maybe this is going to be a miracle that, you know, somebody's going to wake up with the co from a coma. So what is the kind of the bigger issue here? The big issue uh, kind of gets back to uh, the circumstances that you're describing. And if you're in a position where no one has had a dialogue about future care preferences at the time of an emergency, it's way too late. And that's where all these heartbreaking situations occur and where family members are put into these very difficult situations. 
the correct way to do it and what we all should be thinking about as um, individuals and as healthcare organizations and healthcare providers is how do we normalize these conversations to make sure that an individual's voice is heard. And this happens at all stages of life. Somebody that is perhaps younger and healthy doesn't necessarily need to have a comprehensive advanced care plan in place, but they certainly should be thinking about who they would want to speak on their behalf if something unthinkable were to happen, if there was to be an accident or otherwise. Somebody that is perhaps has a few chronic conditions or is, is perhaps elderly, but otherwise very healthy, these individuals ought to be thinking about what their values are, what is important to them in life, and uh, what really matters, and to make sure that they've reflected on that and that they've told their families and their families, surrogate decision makers, loved ones, caregivers, all are aware of that, and that their care providers are aware of that. And then when somebody develops a serious illness, one that we know is going to unfortunately be life-limiting, say in the last few years of life, that's when more in-depth discussions have to happen around how do we take those values and goals and incorporate them into a treatment plan and to make sure that if we're thinking about things like surgeries or chemotherapies or intensive care, that as we think about those possibilities, given that we know that there's a serious illness and unfortunately a limited uh, life expectancy, that we have a clear plan in place for each of those, those kinds of scenarios. That's the ideal scenario, but the truth is that death is not an easy topic to, to talk about. We don't want to think about our last days of life and what our medical care is going to be in that stage, if we will even need one. Then, of course, there's the issue that families don't necessarily get along enough to even talk about these issues. So is this a societal more than a medical issue, according to your observation. What are your experiences with the families that you meet? That's a really, really great, great question. And I think the answer is that it's, it's a bit of both. Um, and I think what we have to do as a society, and one place where I think the medical community has a strong role, is to make sure that this is a normalized conversation. And one of the things that we, uh, we work with several national organizations to, to promote this concept. And then we support our healthcare organizations that we partner with in addressing all of those issues that you mentioned. So at the end of the day, this is a highly personal process, but it is a operational problem that healthcare organizations need to solve. And that is what we help organizations to achieve. And it happens not at the time of an emergency. We support organizations in making sure that those conversations are happening early, that they're happening often, and that they're happening at the appropriate time for the appropriate people, and that everybody is looped in. And there are going to be all of the problems that you mentioned. Um, and that's where um, we are able to support 
our partners in in, uh, in in developing solutions for those those problems. And there's various ways we do that, from uh, how to approach this language, this problem from a language perspective. You know, what language is uh, highlights the importance of why these conversations are needed, and why it's important that an individual's voice is heard. Um, to how we uh, manage the conversation and make sure that healthcare providers, individuals, and their family members have all the resources that they need to make these important decisions. And then ultimately to make sure that from a technology point of view, that there are ways in which at the time of an emergency, that these wishes can be accessed. And by then, everybody is on the same page with respect to that person's wishes. As with many things in medicine, this is not a, a, a clear-cut, simple problem, and there's, there's always issues that arise. And our job is to um, support organizations so that for the vast majority of their, their patients or their members, that they are offered the opportunity to engage in this and that ultimately they receive high-quality care when they're faced with a serious illness. In a recent opinion piece for uh, his talk, you cited alarming numbers. You mentioned a few already, but the research shows that 84% of individuals who are 65 and older have not been asked by their physician to have an advanced care planning conversation. And there is a 37% medical error rate in the end-of-life care plans. Um, also, when physicians were asked about the confidence of locating an existing advanced care plan within the EHR, only 31% of the physicians strongly agreed. So there's a lot of questions that open up here. One is the fact that I'm sure that a lot of uh, doctors will say that they are already stretched thin and, you know, these kinds of discussions are very sensitive. You need to have time for them. So how do you solve that issue before anything else? You know, we have to ask ourselves about, you know, why are we doing this in the first place, right? And we're in, in, in healthcare, there are always going to be a, a thousands of different priorities and thousands of different things to focus on. I think what's changed in the last few years is that there are now, uh, in addition to, I think, Physicians always want to do the right thing. And you're absolutely right. There's always time constraints. There's maybe comfort level constraints. There's a bunch of things that have historically prevented this. But there are a few things that have really supported having these conversations from the healthcare system level. The first is that a few years ago, Medicare started recognizing healthcare providers for their time in having these dialogues with dedicated CPT codes. And one of the things that people don't necessarily realize is that you can have these conversations at regular check-ins, such as the annual wellness visit, and still get recognized from a professional services point of view for that time. The second thing is that many of the value-based models, whether it's BPCI Advanced, the Bundled Payment Initiative, there was a recent mandatory radiation oncology model announced. These all measure the number of advanced care plans that the population has, and they tie that directly to the financial performance of the organization 
in those models. And it's not insignificant uh, amounts that, that come into play here. There is now, I would say, a organizational priority around making sure that individuals' voices are heard. That's the why. Now we can get into the how. And we support these organizations through things like training, education. I mentioned some of the technology tools that allow for standardized conversations, put resources at an individual's fingertips, engage the patient and the caregiver in the dialogue. We also have direct facilitators that can reach out on behalf of a healthcare provider and have introductory conversations to clarify goals and, and, and preferences to uh, solve for the problem that it's true that many, many physicians don't necessarily feel they have the time to have these important conversations. So we've looked at this both from a perspective of articulating the value of advanced care planning and making sure that patient voices are heard, which is something that we all ought to be doing regardless of any incentives to do so, but, but we have historically have not to making sure that we're empowering the individuals, their loved ones, and the clinicians to be able to do this in a way that fits in with their, their day. Perhaps more on a philosophical level in this discussion is just the pure fact that the, the notion of medicine is kind of to steer away from death. You know, doctors save patients, they save life, they prevent death. So to which extent do you think that's perhaps an obstacle when sometimes doctors also hope, you know, that a patient is going to survive? Yes, that's perhaps easier in, in younger patients that are severely ill compared to a 50 or 85 or 90 year old patient. But still there is this, um, I guess, uh, the philosophy of in the background resonating that the life has to be saved. It is a great point. And we're all trained as, as physicians to, and, and we all went, went into medicine at some level to, um, to try and preserve life and ensure we, we can save lives. And I think that's, that's a real, it's a real thing. And I think it still exists today. There's a few ways that this is changing. I think first we're starting to see more programs on the training side, medical schools and residency programs start to introduce concepts of serious illness conversations, difficult conversations, palliative care, hospice care into their core curriculum. So that from day one, there is an understanding that you are still doing the best and you are doing the best by an individual patient if you are listening to them, that's the most important thing is that you're doing something for them that is in accordance with their wishes. How would you assess the progress of palliative and compassionate care, which are basically addressing the issue of trying to ease pain rather than just uh, prolong life, even if that's just somebody that's uh, hooked up to machines? 
Well, palliative care has has seen uh, a lot of growth over the last several years. It, as of, I believe, uh, close to 10 years now, has been a formal fellowship training program, which gives it a, uh, a, a codified status, if you will, within uh, at least academic medicine and, and certainly more broadly. The challenge that exists today, and it has historically existed with palliative care, is that palliative care has four components. It has a lot of what, what Vinca focuses on, which is advanced care planning and goals of care. And in fact, that's about 80% of the reason for a palliative care con- consultation is to have a goals of care conversation. The rest of it has to do with symptom management, care navigation and coordination, and then whole person care, things like social determinants of health, spiritual care, and so on. And you can imagine that this all needs to come from uh, an interdisciplinary team and that it can these things can take a lot of time. And the challenge historically has been that the only means by which these services can be reimbursed is under the traditional fee-for-service model. And that is not a sufficient reimbursement to allow a practice to be able to truly build out a program, a comprehensive palliative care program that addresses the needs of their patients. We are really excited because we've seen models come out of CMMI and there are States like California and others, uh, health plans directly that now offer defined palliative care benefit. And that benefit is designed to make sure that all of those interdisciplinary services that are so foundational to palliative care can be provided. That's still early. There's still a lot of work to do, but it's tremendous progress when you look at what the historical barriers have been to be able to provide this kind of care to individuals with serious illness. I think the pure fact that you mentioned that this is a 10-year-old field says it all about how how young this is. And uh, it's getting increasingly important in the era where, you know, medicine and technology and science, scientific progress are becoming increasingly powerful in terms of what can be done to just sustain a heartbeat. So I don't say life specifically. So these are all also philosophical and difficult discussions. But I do wonder, you know, uh, by February uh, this year, in the last year, half a million people in the U.S. lost their lives because of COVID. These were mostly older uh, people. But I wonder if this high toll, uh, di- did it encourage any additional thought, do you think, in society regarding how do we approach death? Do, should we talk a little bit more about it? Should it be less of a taboo? I think it absolutely did and and I hope that's one of the things that comes in a sustained way from this tragedy is recognizing the importance of talking about care preferences in advance and what I observed was that as much as the the people most at risk of developing 
a critical illness from COVID tended to be more elderly people with chronic conditions or otherwise, the reality is that no one is really spared and that there are definitely cases that people uh, have seen or heard about of young, otherwise perfectly healthy people that have died from COVID. And I think hearing those stories brought it home to a lot of people that, boy, I've got to really think about this for myself and what I would want. And I've got to think about my loved ones. And if I was called upon to make those decisions, would I know what to say? And would I know what this individual would want? So I think that there's there's been um, that realization that we have to have these conversations. And as you said earlier, these are not necessarily the most comfortable conversations all the time, but there are ways to have these conversations. And there's tools and resources and um, and support for people that, that want to have them. And uh, again, my hope is that as we emerge from this global tragedy, that this is one of the, the things that comes out of it that is is for good and for, for the better. What would your advice be to people how to approach this topic, either for, for themselves, either for their parents or their grandparents? Because there's a lot of resources on the internet. Uh, the Conversation Project is an initiative of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, which is a not-for-profit organization that's the leader in health and healthcare improvement worldwide. There's the Prepare for Your Care website that has a questionnaire. So there's a lot of resources. And, you know, there's also then the question of how long should a document like the Advanced Care Plan be? You're right. There are resources that people have spent a lot of time developing to support these conversations. You mentioned a few. There are also organizations like Five Wishes. Um, there are organizations like the Ariadne uh, Labs, uh, which developed a serious illness conversation guide. There's things like Death Over Dinner, these these frameworks that have been developed more for community or or family-based conversations. So um, those are all available to help support and, and guide these kinds of conversations. So my advice would be to, if you're, if you're an individual, to check those resources out and to see what works and what fits, fits for you and your loved ones or whoever you're having the conversation with, because everybody's a bit Different, And I will say that many of these frameworks all are based on common themes. Uh, so it really comes down to which one fits best for you. The other thing is that you can, you as an individual or as a patient, as much as I don't like that word, have the absolute right to call your physician up, make an appointment, and say, I want to talk about my future care preferences. And I want to make sure that you're aware of them. And I want to understand how you're going to make sure as a healthcare system, that if there's an emergency, that my wishes are going to be honored. We are all empowered to do that. And clinicians are 
an amazing resource for this. And uh, everyone should feel empowered to make that appointment. And that is just as important uh, an appointment, if not a more important appointment, than coming in to adjust some COPD inhalers. Which kind of brings us to the next um, challenge. So let's say that you have a plan that you present that to the doctor. Why do these documents get lost? We said before that when physicians were asked about the confidence of locating an existing advanced care plan, 31% of physicians strongly agreed. That means that 69% either didn't agree uh, in uh, some degree or just didn't know how to answer that. So, you know, to me as a patient, that would be alarming. You know, in a way you get a peace of mind by preparing this and then you're anxious if you're going to be heard or not. You wouldn't believe the number of people I see in my clinic that have asked me or, or stated to me and this is not at any one hospital or clinic. This is from a, a common thing across every place I've ever practiced. There are a remarkable number of individuals that assume that the hospital or the clinic has their advanced directive or their advanced care plan on file. And as you stated, that is a gross misrepresentation of what's actually going on. So this is a real problem. And the problem stems from a variety of different ways and goes back to my point earlier about this being a really complex operational problem to solve for healthcare organizations. There's issues of these documents getting scanned into places of the EHR where they're very hard to find and they're buried amongst a bunch of other documents, problems with legibility, errors on the forms, problems of interoperability, how do you make sure that these are universally available? And we've worked really hard through our technology platform and solution to serve as a single source of truth for these documents in a national way. And we are, to our knowledge, the largest uh, single repository of advanced care plans in the United States, close to a million uh, individuals with advanced care plans and over a million uh, advanced care plans that are aggregated, matched, and are accessible. Now, we work with our organizations to make sure that these are accessible in a way that matches the clinical workflow, because that's so important. Variety of ways that we approach that. But the bottom line is that um, a lot of our focus has been on solving that accessibility problem, not only for the clinician, but as I mentioned earlier, for that family member who is going to be called upon to speak on behalf of their loved ones. Let's talk a little bit more about your technical solution. So how does it work? Uh, How do hospitals access these documents? Do all hospitals access these documents? Um, The United States are huge in terms of healthcare providers. So how do patients get a peace of mind that no matter where they're going to land, if it's in an ER somewhere far from their home, that these documents will be available to the healthcare providers? So we take an approach of um, looking, as I mentioned, for integration points within electronic health records. And 
depending on the particular healthcare organization, or we have several state level partnerships where we serve as the registry for the state. And we have a variety of ways of tying into that core healthcare technology infrastructure that allow us to, um, to, to create those, those connection points. And we, in fact, serve patients now in every U.S. state. Look at this on a, a, a development level of making sure that those network connections are there. And to emphasize again, what's equally important to the clinician having access is the surrogate decision maker having access. And when an individual completes an advanced care plan uh, with Vinca, they're automatically invited to share those preferences with their loved ones who then have 24-7 access to those wishes as well. So between all of those ways, we have multiple ways, multiple failure points that can be avoided. And we've worked to, to make sure that we kind of fill in those gaps at every point of the way to solve for the vast majority of those situations where the document is needed. Um, an interesting thing happened, uh, I think it was this year, and that was in Montana, a jury delivered what is believed to be the first verdict in a wrongful life case. And this means that um, a, a wife of a patient complained because his basically advanced care plan was not taken into account. And the way she explained it was that if such a care is not uh, followed through, kind of the answer of the hospitals is often that nobody got hurt, you know, because they did take care of the patient. So how did you see this case? And is this an additional thing that healthcare providers should consider when they think about the fact that the consumerization of healthcare is demanding more and more also in this regard, you know, that wishes do need to be taken into account. Uh, this was a, a case that, that, uh, that was uh, certainly very topical and, and recent, as you point out. Um, we are aware of um, a few other cases over the last couple of years that actually ended up being settled and didn't, didn't come to full verdict, but were similar, similar issues of over-treatment, of unwanted treatment. The way I look at this is that you're absolutely right that most providers, you know, if you if you decide to put somebody on life support, you're they're they're still alive at least. You know, whereas if you make the other decision, that's a one-way street. And I think in most providers' minds, from a medical legal risk perspective, they think, well, I'm going to, the, the safer thing for me to do from a medical legal risk perspective is to start life-sustaining treatments rather than shifting to more comfort-focused care. So the default has always been life-sustaining treatment. And I think this case example teaches us that Physicians are at risk from a medical legal perspective of not listening to a patient's preferences and voice in either direction. And that's something that is very new, but is very important. 
in in one of the documents that I was looking as the advanced care uh, plan preparation, I that that there was a section that I thought was really uh, connected to the point that you're making, and that was uh, the level of flexibility you want to give to your healthcare provider when taking into the account uh, of your advanced care plan. And there were three sections: either you don't want to give the physician any flexibility. And then there was the second section about the doctor having some flexibility. So, you know, I imagine that as a physician, it's really difficult to say, you know, which wishes should you then take into account and which not. And I totally understand why um, they would go for the safe bet, which is just to preserve um, life. Did you ever find yourself in these kinds of situations? Perhaps you can share any of your uh, medical clinical experiences when uh, discussing and addressing these issues. Well, to me, the way I look at an advanced care plan is not as a black and white dichotomous document, but I look at it as a way to start a very difficult conversation with an individual or with their families if they're unable to speak for themselves about what we should do. So in the emergency room, for example, and there's been several cases of this over the years, but if I'm seeing somebody where there's needs to be, a, they're very sick and they need to um, really to, to survive, they would need to be placed on, on life support and, There's clear issues like a serious illness or other things that maybe make that not the best thing for that person. It's much easier to start that conversation if I have an advanced care plan that I can find and I can review it and I can get a sense of where that person's values and preferences are to start that conversation. It's a much more difficult conversation to start if I have no idea, if the patient hasn't thought about it, and if the family has no idea. So if, if we do have an advanced care planning document, it allows me to start a conversation like this to say, I'm, I'm, unfortunately, your, your loved one is very sick. And I was able to find an advanced care planning document where they had a conversation with their, their healthcare provider And it seemed like if this situation were to arise, that they wouldn't want to be put on life support and they'd prefer to focus on their comfort. Is that consistent with your understanding? That conversation relieves the family of the burden of decision-making because they are aware of some of the conversations that have had Gone, uh, that have, have happened in the past and that, that have gone on about that person's wishes. The other conversation, if there hasn't been a document, goes something like this. Your relative is very sick right now, and we have two options. We have an option to start life-sustaining treatments, which would involve XYZ, or we have an, an option to focus on their comfort but that's going to probably result in, in them. There's a very good chance that they may pass away this evening if we do that. And you can imagine the difficult position that everybody is in at that point. 
and those very heart-wrenching decisions that need to be made. So that to me is the best use of an advanced care plan. And it's less about the sort of specifics on the document. It's more about the content of that document and how it allows us to have these very meaningful conversations to make sure that an individual gets the best care that's consistent with their wishes. It's hard to imagine how a person, a relative can even make a decision when I imagine that a situation as you just described is so emotionally difficult that it's impossible to be rational, you know? So, uh, does it happen that, I don't know, people first decide that they want to have the life prolonged and then they go to, to do comfort care or that they come back regretting the decision that they made? I would say that in most cases in that, that latter scenario I gave where there's no advanced care plan, in my experience, most families are going to make a decision to start life-sustaining treatment for exactly that reason. And then I think once everyone sees that life-sustaining treatment comes with, it's very uncomfortable, that leads to a, a lot of challenge and burden for, uh, for, for family and loved ones um, once, once they kind of see what that really involves and understand that, that they never really had the chance to ask their loved one if that's what they actually wanted. I mentioned before that uh, Vinca is uh, in existence for seven years by now. Could you, as a last question, make a short reflection of the progress that has been done in the last uh, decade since we mentioned that uh, palliative care has been more recognized and maybe how could things be improved or will be improved uh, according to your wishes in the upcoming five to 10 years? Well, I think the, the biggest changes that we've seen looking over that period um, are around the national dialogue and policy and regulation and payment. When we first started working on this problem, the word death, the words death panel were still very common And that created a lot of fear amongst um, and made advanced care planning a hyper taboo topic within uh, payment policy, other circles. And what we saw coming out of that over the last few years, as I mentioned earlier, CMS stood up and said, we are paying for a physician to have this dialogue. Um, we are, incorporating advanced care planning in our value-based programs. And we're seeing many demonstration projects coming out of CMMI now that are directly related to serious illness care. So if we look ahead five years from now, my hope would be that from a, a policy perspective, that we have continued that recognition of the importance of, of serious illness care and that the reimbursement mechanisms to support the highest quality serious illness care for individuals are in place so that these people can get the care that they want and have their voices heard when they're faced with a serious illness or at the very end of life. Mm -hmm.
You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, leave a rating or a review by going to www.lovethepodcast.com slash Faces of Digital Health and you will be redirected to the platform appropriate for your device. Stay tuned.